God does indeed raise us up. Thank you for that reminder, Gary. Thank you for the worship team as well uh, this morning. Today we are continuing in our series over the parables. And we're in the parables of the weeds, the mustard seed, and the leaven from Matthew chapter 13 this morning. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Um, That's where we're going to be at here this morning. We're going to be in uh, verse 24 to 40. Three. Now, while you're turning there, let me also say, hopefully you grab some of your elements uh, on the way in. Um, and if you would, just before we even get going, at the very top, you can pull that little cellophane piece off. I know that I had trouble with it last, last time we did this, but there's like two little tabs here, and one of the cellophane one is for the bread. And so I've already kind of pre-pulled mine a little bit to make it a little easier at the end of the message today when we take communion together. So you may want to do that as well as while, while we're working through the text, uh, so you're ready when we get to the end, just to make it a little bit easier for yourself. I know I've done that for me. So Matthew chapter 13 is where we're at, uh, verse 24 is, is where we're going to begin here today, and, and we're really looking at the weeds, the mustard seed, and the leaven as we continue to work through the parables of Jesus. Let me go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will dive into this message this morning. God, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as the church to open your word, to to learn from it, God. And as we walk through these parables here this morning, help us to do just that, to learn what you would have us to learn, to apply what you would have us to apply to our life and to the life of this church. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I've already mentioned, this summer we're working through the parables of Jesus. And and last week we looked at the parable of the sower. And the parable of the sower helped us to make sense of, of why some people who seem like they are Christians end up walking away from the faith and why there is so much unbelief in this world. And my hope is that you left encouraged last week to continue to follow Jesus, even though there are many who reject, and even though there are many even high-profile celebrity Christians, if we could even use that term, who are deconstructing their faith publicly and walking away from Jesus. Hopefully you understand why that's taking place, and you're encouraged to keep pressing on in your faith. If you missed last week, it's up on our website, on our YouTube page, and on the Church Center app, you can go and listen to the parable of the sower. And while we might have a better understanding after looking at that text last week as, as to why some people reject Jesus, why some people seem like they are believers and then walk away from the faith, and why some people, despite whatever circumstances it is that they face, they continue to remain firm in their beliefs, you might still be wondering, why does God allow evil to continue in the world? Why does God allow evil to continue in the world. For whatever reason, my two sons, they like to ask some deep theological questions. And they like to do this right before bedtime. Literally, as I am walking out of my youngest son's room the other night, he asks me, Dad, if Jesus has come, why is there evil in the world? And he's right in asking that question. Jesus has come. He has paid the price for our sins. Jesus has has promised to bring the kingdom to do away with all sin and disease and death and evil in this world and to set up a perfect kingdom. He is right in asking that question. Why is there still evil in the world? Why does God allow bad people to continue to do evil things? 
And just so we're on the same page regarding evil, evil is not just evil because God says that it is evil, even though God does say that evil is evil. Evil is not evil because there is some external standard that exists outside of God. No, evil is evil because it goes against, it is in direct violation of God's character. God defines what is good for us because God Himself is good. Those things that are good in this world are good because they correspond to God's character. Those things that are evil in this world are evil because they go against God's character of who He is. And knowing that, why does God allow evil to continue in this world? Evil is a direct affront to the character of God, and so why allow it to continue? Is it because God is not powerful enough? Is it because he has to build up an army that will, be, that will eventually be capable of dealing with evil one day, but, but he hasn't finished building that army, he hasn't finished gathering the, the soldiers and the weapons and the equipment around to eradicate evil? Is that the reason? Is it because God is just kind of winging it and he doesn't have a plan at all? Well, I can assure you that none of those are true and that God does have a plan. God has a plan to deal with evil. If you remember from last week, sandwiched between the, the two parables, or the parable that we looked at was the parable of the sower and the explanation of the parable. There was this section, and it talked about why Jesus spoke in parables. And that section helped us to understand that some of the explanation of the parable. We learned that He spoke in parables to provide further understanding to those who had been given understanding by the Father and, and to those who had no understanding, who had shut their hearts, who had shut their eyes, who had shut their ears to Jesus. His parables act as a form of judgment. Now in today's passage, Matthew uses a similar technique. In between the, the parables that Jesus gives, there is a, another explanation of the parables. And he tells us why Jesus again speaks in parables. And it is, it is this explanation that, that helps to inform us as we study these parables. The parable of the weed and the mustard seed and the leaven. So look at what he says in verse 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And so we learn here that, that Jesus speaks in parables to reveal what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. And the idea behind that word hidden means that, that it, was, it was literally concealed. It, it, was, it was a secret. It was something that was not known. But Jesus is now revealing that which is hidden. And He reveals it in His parables, specifically these parables regarding the kingdom uh, that we're looking at here in Matthew chapter 13. And, and all those who have been given the ability to understand these parables also have the ability to understand God's plan and Jesus, that Jesus reveals through these particular parables. You see, God has a plan for this world, a plan that existed before the foundation of the world, before anything was even created, we learn here. God has a plan. And God has a plan to deal with evil. If you don't believe that God has a plan, if you just think that God is winging it, well then I would invite you to go back through the Old Testament to look at the, the prophecies and the promises that God delivers specifically to the nation of Israel and, and even those before that. Look at those and see how God fulfilled those prophecies. How God has fulfilled those promises. Scripture is replete 
with that. God has a plan for this world. God has a plan to deal with evil in this world. God is our Creator. And God is the one who has a plan for everything that is going to happen. And God will bring His plan to fruition. Nothing will thwart God's plan at all. Well, that might be hard to believe because, you know, our best laid plans, they, they don't always work out. If you're a parent, especially a parent of young kids, you know this to be true. You might have, you know, you might say, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to plan out a day for my kids and I. We're going to get out of the house and we're going to go and do some stuff. And so you have this entire day planned out. You're going to take your kids to the park. You're going to wear them out before you go and run errands because running errands before you wear your kids out is no fun at all. Uh, so you're going to wear your kids out before you go and you run errands. And then after you go and you run, run some errands, you're going to head over to the grocery store. You're going to pick up some food that, that you're going to cook that night for a family that is coming over to visit with you and your family. You have a full day, but you have it planned out. You're ready to go. And you're getting ready. You've already got your kids ready. Now you're back there. You're, you are getting ready. And your kids, they are they're being quiet. Maybe a little too quiet, right? They're not coming and interrupting you and, and asking you to do this and that and get a snack and all this other stuff for you. They're not fighting with one another and you're thinking, man, this is so great. This is so great. And then you think, well, why are they being so quiet? I mean, what is going on? I need to go and check on my kids. And, and then you do. You, you walk back to, to their room and you check on them and, and you walk in and to your horror, they have paint all over their brand new clothes that you had dressed them in. And then there's, there's little fingerprints all over the wall. Guess what you're going to be doing that day? Well, you're not going to go to the park. You're not going to be running errands. You might make it to the grocery store to pick up some food for that couple that's coming over. Or you might just be calling Domino's to deliver pizza. Or you might just cancel all together. Our best laid plans don't always work out, but God's do. God is our Creator. He is the one who has created you and I and the universe in which we live. God controls everything in this world. God is the all-sovereign God who is intimately involved in this world. His plans don't fail. God has a plan to deal with evil. And so what is God's plan? And when will God deal with evil? Well, as we read through these parables, you are going to notice the phrase, the kingdom of heaven. Matthew is going to say, the kingdom of heaven is like. And the kingdom of heaven is that which Jesus reigns and rules over. And the kingdom of heaven includes everything, the entire universe. Jesus reigns over all things. In verse 24, it begins uh, the parable of the weeds. And what do we learn from the parable of the weeds? What does it reveal to us about why God allows evil to continue in this world. Well, let me summarize the parable for you. In the parable, Jesus tells a story about a farmer. And this farmer goes out and he sows wheat on his land or he has his workers go and do that. But, but the farmer has an enemy who comes at night and he plants these weeds in the field. And, and the weeds that his enemy comes and plants is a weed known as darnel. And darnel closely resembles wheat. At first, they look exactly the like. You cannot tell them apart. The only way that you can tell them apart is when the wheat begins to mature. And you notice that, that, that the darnel stalks don't mature. There's no fruit on them like there is on the wheat. 
And what we see then is that the bad crop ends up growing alongside of the good crop. And as it grows, their their roots end up intertwining with one another. And the weeds end up soaking up all the nutrients and and the moisture in the soil. And it, it stunts the growth of the wheat so that it doesn't produce as it would have if the darnel had not been planted in the first place. And once you're able to tell that, that this field is infested with these weeds, with this darnel, you, you can't go out there and pull the weeds up because of the roots being intertwined with one another. You would end up pulling up your wheat crop and losing a large portion of your wheat crop. And so the farmer instructs his servants not to pull up the darnel, to allow the darnel to live alongside of the wheat. And then at the end, in the harvest, when harvest time finally comes, at that point, they will, they will then separate the two out. The wheat will be put in the barn, and the darnel will be burned. And that is the parable proper. And so what is the interpretation of this parable? If you look down to verse 37, you would see, He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And that, that is, we know, is Jesus. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. That's Jesus' disciples. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. These are the unbelievers. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and that's referring to when Jesus returns, and the reapers are the angels. Those are what each part of the parable represents. And look what Jesus tells us will happen when he returns, if we continue in the text. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and He will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You see, even though evil is allowed to continue in this world, judgment is coming. When Jesus returns, all those who are not His disciples, all those who have not repented of their sins, all those who refuse to recognize that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that He is the one who provides them with salvation, all of those who refuse to follow Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior, they will face judgment. And for now, Jesus allows His disciples to live in the world among those who are evil. And those who are evil do evil things. We've seen that all along, all this last week in the news about Afghanistan, right? People are being oppressed, people are being beaten, people are being killed. Thirteen soldiers lost their lives and over 160 people there lost their lives because somebody decided, some evil person decided that they were going to go and set off a bomb in a crowd of people at the airport. Evil exists in this world. We live among it every single day. But Jesus promises us here that evil will not continue forever. One day, Jesus is going to come and Jesus is going to deal with evil. Those who are not in the kingdom, they will be judged and they they will be purged from this world as all evil is purged from this world. But that is not going to happen now. It will happen when Jesus returns. That might leave us asking, well, why? Why does Jesus wait so long to deal with evil? Why not deal 
<clears throat> excuse me, why not deal with evil now? You know, if Jesus had already dealt with evil, those soldiers would not have been killed. Their parents, their spouses, their kids would not have to grow up in a world without them. If Jesus had already dealt with evil, the war in Afghanistan would not have even occurred in the first place and it would have saved countless lives. If Jesus had already dealt with evil, over 600,000 aborted babies would not be boarded each year. If Jesus had already dealt with evil, there wouldn't be gangs fighting over turf to sell drugs, to destroy families and communities and kills people. If evil didn't exist in the world, the world would be a better place. The world would be a perfect place. So why? Why does Jesus wait so long to deal with evil? Well, let's look at our next parable, the parable of the mustard seed. And that begins in verse 31. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it had grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. The mustard seed is a small seed, but from this very small seed grows this, this, this tree. Uh, it's actually a bush, but, but it ends up being as big as a tree. 20 foot tall, 20 foot wide. All of the birds can come and, and nest in its branches. And the parable teaches us several things. It teaches us while the kingdom starts small, the kingdom does not stay small. The kingdom ends up growing. And we have, we have seen this growth. Right? We're privileged to see this growth. The church today, compared to Jesus' day, has grown a lot. The number of believers on earth now versus the number of believers that were on earth in Jesus' day is significantly greater. There are over around 2 billion people who would call themselves Christians today. That's a significant jump from the hundreds and even thousands that believed in Jesus in Jesus' day. We see this with our own eyes that this parable is true. But what has started out as a small movement with, with 12 disciples has grown to over 2 billion people today. And that's not counting all of the people throughout the centuries who have already passed who proclaim the name of Jesus. The kingdom starts small from a small seed, the seed of the gospel. And it has grown large to a great movement today. We also learn that the kingdom is still growing as people from every nation comes into the kingdom. The kingdom will continue to grow until its branches are full. The parable of the mustard seed teaches us that God allows evil to continue to allow the kingdom to grow and the nations to come into the kingdom. I like what one commentator has to say about this. Jesus' principle here applies to every age to the question of why God allows evil and suffering in the world. His creation can be purged of all evil only through the judgment and recreation of the universe at the end of the age because evil resides in every person. God's delay in bringing the kingdom, God's delay in bringing the end of the world is thus entirely gracious, giving people more opportunity to repent. You see what he's saying? God allows evil to continue and He holds off judgment for our sake. For the sake of those to whom He is called to be a part of His kingdom. If God did not hold off judgment until the end, you or I, we may not even be a part of the kingdom. We might not think of it like this, but God not ridding the world of evil now is actually a gracious act. It is the opportunity for all peoples everywhere to continue to stream in, to continue to come in and make their nest in the limbs of the kingdom of God 
before judgment comes. And as God is holding off His judgment, what should we be doing for the kingdom? What should we be doing for the kingdom? Our last parable, it's a short one. It's only one verse, but it tells us what we should be doing for the kingdom. So look at verse 33 with me. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, if you guys are familiar with the leavening process, you know that, that when you add leaven to, to the dough and it's left to sit over time, that dough ends up, up rising as the leaven works through the dough. Eventually, the whole bread is leavened. And in this parable, the dough ends up representing the world. The leaven represents believers in Christ and those who are already a part of the kingdom. And the parable of the leaven teaches us that while we wait for Jesus to return, we are not to wait idle. Instead, we are to be about the business of spreading the gospel. We are to be about the business of influencing the world and others for Christ, just as the leaven leavens a whole lump of bread. This parable also teaches us that that Christians have the ability to influence the world for Jesus. A lot of times I think that, that we believe that, that because we, we see how messed up the world is, well, you know what, we're not going to be able to do anything. We think that, that people are never going to come to Christ. But if you think about it, you were a part of the world at one time. And yes, despite how good you think that you are, you were actually that bad. You were that evil of a person and you have come to faith in Christ you believe in Christ you you stand firm in Christ you profess Christ so we do have the ability to influence the world for Christ despite the fact that we think the world is an evil place or you might be on the other hand and think well well I'm just I'm just too messed up I'm too messed up of a person I don't have things going on in my life I don't I'm not I'm not right in certain areas um, there's no way that God is going to use me. I've got to get to the certain level before God can use me to do anything for His kingdom. Yes, I believe in Jesus, but I've still got a lot more sanctification that has to take place in my life. God could never, ever use me right now. Well, you could be, you're, you're absolutely wrong. God uses people all along the way of the sanctification process. It doesn't matter if you just became a believer in Christ and your life is just absolutely in shambles or you have been a believer in Christ for 50 years and you seemingly have things together. God uses people all along that perspective for Him to reach other people for Christ. So the world is messed up. There are a lot of people who reject Christ, the Christian message, the gospel. But there are also a lot of people who are going to believe the gospel message. And God is preparing the hearts of those right now for you to be able to spread the gospel to them. Amen. And hearing, they will believe and they will become a part of the kingdom just like you and I heard and we became a part of the kingdom no matter how rebellious we were prior to that. No matter how much we didn't want God prior to that. God is preparing the hearts of people right now to hear the gospel from you. Not just from me. Not just from the Sunday school teachers here. From you. From each and every one of you. The kingdom grows as Christians work for the kingdom in the world. And so while God is patient, while God holds off His judgment, it is our job to work for the kingdom. It is our job to influence the world for Christ. And how do we do that? How do we work for 
the kingdom? Well, one, we can evangelize others. We can go door to door and, and talk to people about uh, Christ. We can work to build relationships with those that we come in contact with on a regular basis with the purpose of, of speaking the gospel into their lives. You know, in the past, I used to spend a, a lot of time at coffee shops. COVID has kind of killed that for me. Um, but in the past, I spent a lot of time at coffee shops. And I, I love coffee shops. I love the coffee shop vibe. I love coffee. But that wasn't the only reason that I went to the coffee shop. I went with the intention of building relationships with folks in order to talk with them about the gospel. And over the years, as I've just spent time in coffee shops, drinking coffee and working on sermons and Bible studies and things like that, I've been able to have a number of conversations with people about the gospel at the coffee shop. And you... You go to a lot of places as well. Maybe you have a coffee shop that, that you go to. Maybe you have a donut shop that, that you go to, or a hair salon, or you know, a workout place, a playground, an auction. Maybe you are into cattle and you go to cattle shows. You have people that, that you work with. You've got people in your kids or grandkids, sports teams. You have people that live next door to you. You don't have to go to the coffee shop to meet these people and build relationships with them. There are many ways that we can build relationships with people. And there are many ways then that from those relationships that we have built that we can begin to speak the gospel into their lives. But here's the thing. In order for that to happen, we have to be intentional about that. You see, if I just went to the coffee shop and got over there and didn't, didn't speak to anybody and just kind of did my thing and got my coffee and sat down and that's it, well, guess what? I probably wouldn't have any conversation with anybody. Because I wasn't being intentional about doing that. And the same for you. You go to the donut shop or the hairdresser or wherever it might be and you just sit there and you don't ever try to engage anybody. Well, you're probably not going to have any... Com you're probably not going to have a gospel conversation with that person. We have to be intentional. And we, we use those opportunities to then be able to speak the gospel into people's lives as we build relationships with them. Another way that we can work for the kingdom is by living for God. If we want to be an effective evangelist, then we have to live for God. We have to actually live out God's Word. You know, one of the most common critiques that Christians get from those who are non-believers is that Christians are, are hypocrites, right? We, we say one thing, we say we believe in Jesus, we say we believe in the Bible, but then we, but then we live life a completely different way. And guess what? People notice. People notice when that is the case. Not just people in your own house, right? But, but people outside of your house. People in the community. They notice, they say, well, so-and-so over there is a deacon, but man, look how they treat their people at work. I mean, so-and-so over here, they're a Sunday school teacher. Look how they're, you know, just yelling at this person here at the coffee shop because they didn't make their coffee right. Or man, they're, they're a church member over there at Eastridge, but you know, I would never do business with that person. And people know you. People know what's going on. People know that you're a believer. People know if you hold positions at churches and things like that. And they watch you. And they see, and sometimes they unfairly watch you and unfairly judge you. But the world is, is watching. And the world is quick to jump on the fact that, man, they're just a hypocrite. And that's a smokescreen, right? They don't want to believe in Jesus. They want to have some reason to say, well, I don't want to be a Christian. Look at those Christians over there. They don't, they don't even love one another. There's no unity over there at all. I mean, why would I ever want to be a Christian? Things are going great over here for me. And we are not even believers. And sadly, that is, that is oftentimes true. Sometimes a church can be just this like, man, sinful place where we're just rah, really 
gossiping about one another and backbiting one another and yelling at one another, all kind of stuff, right? But you don't see that in your workplace. You don't see that on your sports team and things like that. And so people are, why do I ever want to be a believer? You see, we have to live out God's Word if we want to be effective in our evangelism. We can also be effective in our evangelism by working for our city and our community. We can be an influence for the kingdom by helping out in the city, by helping out in the community. I mean, serving at the homeless shelter, volunteering at a school, helping those in need, working in the government, much, much more. We can be an influence for the kingdom as we work for the good of the kingdom in our city, right? Don't we need people who are on the school board? Don't we need people who are in positions in the city who are believers who can then begin to affect change in certain areas? We need that. We need people who are volunteer in areas and mentorships and things like that where they can begin to be an influence for Christ. And as we get enough people who are volunteering in these areas, things will reach a tipping point. A tipping point where, where we will be able to have an effect on the community in which we live. It doesn't have to be 90%. I was reading the other day, it was something like 10%. It's, it could be a small minority of people, but a small minority of people in a lot of different key positions all throughout the city can allow things to reach a tipping point. We can begin to bring a little bit of the, of the kingdom to come into this kingdom now in which we live, in this world in which we live, this sinful world in which we live. You see, sitting back and just saying, well, there's, everything's evil in this world. Oh, I can't believe all the evil that's happening in the world. And you're watching the news and you're getting all infuriated and mad and about all that stuff. And you go and you sit at the coffee shop with your buddies and you talk about it and you guys have solved the world if they would just listen to you. Well, that, that's not helpful, right? But what is helpful is actually engaging in certain areas with an intentional purpose to do those things, to be a gospel influence. So that's how we can be a gospel influence for the city. The last way that we can be a gospel influence for the city, or at least the last way I'm going to give you today, is that we can disciple others. You know, through the years I have been discipled by a number of different people. They, they've been a major influence in my life. They've helped me grow spiritually. They've helped me with my knowledge of God's Word and, and things like that. And if we want to be an influence for the kingdom, then we can and we must disciple others as well. People need others. People need others to help them understand God's Word. People need others to, to help hold them accountable, to, to provide them with wisdom. We need others to encourage us to continue to walk out our faith. We need others. Christianity is not a lone ranger thing that we do on, all on our own. We need other people. As we come to faith in Christ, we are birthed into a community, a community of people, the church. And there are different expressions of that, a local expression and a universal expression, but we need the church. And it's our vision at this church that we would be a church full of disciple-making disciples, that every member will be making disciples of someone else, that they will be replicating themselves as they live life as a disciple of Christ. But I'm afraid that, that it's not going to happen unless we, we throw out a, a consumer mentality and, and we adopt a disciple-making culture. We have to make a shift to, to seeing churches as being about me to, to it being about other people. We must become more other-centric rather than me-centric. 
And unless we change our mentality, unless we understand that the reason that we gather together as the church is to help to encourage and, and hold accountable, to teach and to care for one another, we won't be a disciple-making church. Instead, so we're going to be like every other consumer-driven church out there that is just trying to meet the needs of the people who come from a me-centric standpoint. But that's not the type of church that we need to be. That's not the type of church that I want us to be. That's not the type of church that Jesus wants us to be. Jesus is calling us to be a church full of disciple-making disciples, people who are replicating themselves for the kingdom. And as we wait for the kingdom to come, we are to work for the kingdom. And what are we doing to work for the kingdom? What are you doing to work for the kingdom? How are you influencing this world for Jesus? There are a lot of people out there who need to hear the gospel. There are a lot of people who need to be encouraged, who need to be helped, who need to be discipled. What are you doing to influence the world for Jesus? What can you do this week to influence the world for Jesus? Maybe there's a neighbor or a coworker that, that you can begin to engage and build that intentional relationship with. Maybe there's someone around the corner that, that you can help out. Maybe you can start a discipleship relationship with a friend, a coworker, a, your kid, or, or even your, your grandkid. What are you doing this week to be an influence to the world for Jesus? That's my challenge for you as you leave here today. To take one of those four things that, that you see up here on the screen and to begin working on that this week. To begin being a gospel influence this week by applying one of those four things. And so yes, evil exists in this world. But evil does not exist because God is not capable of handling it. It doesn't mean that He is not powerful or that God doesn't care. God does care. He has a plan. A plan Jesus reveals through these parables. Evil only exists because God allows it to exist for now. But there will be a time in the future when Jesus will return and Jesus will judge evil. Evil will be eradicated from this world. We can count on that. God has given us that promise in His Word and God's Word is true. We can always count on it coming true. In the meantime, the kingdom continues to grow. And while we are waiting... For Jesus to return, we, we should wait both patiently, continuing to trust that God does have a plan for this world, even though we see massive amounts of evil happening around us, but we should not wait idle. We should seek to influence others for Christ. And that's how you can respond here this morning. You can respond by seeking to influence others for Christ this week. You can respond by believing in Jesus' plan. And that's what the Lord's Supper represents to us. It represents to us the Father's plan to deal with evil come to fruition in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. God has not just left this world. He is not just winging it. The Son has come to deal with evil. And if you're a believer here today, I'm going to invite you to participate in the Lord's Supper with us as a way to proclaim that you are Jesus' disciple. That you believe that, that the Gospel is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. That you believe that Jesus has died for you and made a way for you to enter into this perfect world. That you believe that Jesus is going to deal with evil one day when He returns. 
If you're not a believer here today, let the elements pass. I encourage you to use this time to reflect on your life and the coming judgment at the end of the world. And taking these elements, they're, they're not magical. I mean, they're, they're not going to save you. Instead, they, they are a representation of Jesus' life and death and resurrection on our behalf. If you're not a believer, if you don't call yourself a Christian, allow them to pass. These elements are for the family. Instead, use this time to reflect on your life, to repent of your sins, to turn to Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. You see, the kingdom is open to, to all peoples. The birds from all nations come and they make a nest in the limbs of the kingdom of Jesus. The kingdom is open to you as well. It is open for all those who would believe in Jesus, repent of their sins, turn to Him as their Lord and as their Savior. Well, this time we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. and So I want to invite you to, to grab these elements to begin opening your packet if you haven't done so already. And on that night when Jesus was gathered together there with His disciples... Jesus took the bread and the wine and, and He told His disciples that this represents His body, this represents His blood. And first Jesus took the bread, He broke it, He told His disciples that it represented His body, His body that was going to be broken for them. You see, Jesus came and Jesus paid our debt. And the wages of sin is death, that is the debt that we owe. And as we take the bread, let's remember that Jesus came and Jesus died on our behalf, freeing us from that debt, making a way for us to live forever. Let's take this now. That night, Jesus also took the wine and He told His disciples that the wine represents the blood of a new covenant. Blood that had been shed on our behalf. Blood that, that symbolically covers us and all those who believe in Jesus as their Lord and as their Savior. It represents His perfect, righteous sacrifice for us. And as this blood covers us, much like it covered the, the mercy seat in the Old Testament, it provides us with, with righteousness. It makes us holy. Not because we have done anything, but because Jesus has done that for us. Jesus has shed His blood on our behalf. And as we drink this, that's what we're proclaiming. We're proclaiming that it is not our works, but that it is Jesus' work on our behalf that provides us with salvation. That makes us righteous so that we can enter into the kingdom. And so let's remember that as we partake of this now. Would you bow with me in prayer? God, I thank you for this day and this opportunity that we are able to come together. We are to come together as, as the church. We are to learn from your word, God. And more than just learn from your word, we are able to, to gather together here today and we are to, able to celebrate. Celebrate what you have done for us in a visual way, taking of the Lord's Supper. God, we thank You for the sacrifice that You have made for us. We thank You how Your, your body was broken on our behalf, that You paid the wages 
of sin, that you died in our place. We thank you that your blood was spilt, Lord, that, 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 and, that, and that your blood covers us and makes us righteous so that we might be able to live in the kingdom to come forever and ever. God, we thank you for the plan that you have to deal with evil in this world and how we see, even this morning, not just, not just through the preached word, but as we partake of these elements, how we see that plan come to fruition in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And now, as we wait in the in-between, the already not yet where the kingdom is here but not yet fully, we hope. We hope in Christ. We hope in the kingdom to come, knowing that it will be a perfect, righteous kingdom. And evil will not exist in it. And we hope and we long for that day. And Lord, we say, come, come Jesus, come even now. And all this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.